Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. This week, WFIU's John Bailey speaks with television host Mark Summers. Summers visited the WFIU studios in March as he was preparing for the premiere of his one-man show called Everything in Its Place, The Life and Slimes of Mark Summers. Our guest today is Mark Summers, an Indiana native, now in his fourth decade of appearing on TV screens nationwide as host of a variety of talk and game shows. More recently, he's been seen on Food Network's Unwrapped, which reveals how packaged foods are produced, and has served behind the scenes as a producer of the reality show Restaurant Impossible. And to a generation of kids and their parents, he's probably best known as the longtime host of Double Dare, a Nickelodeon game show that merged quiz questions, obstacle courses, and a significant quantity of green slime. Mark <laughs> Summers, thank you for being here today. Thank you, John. Uh, boy, that, that uh, introduction at the beginning, where do I fit into that? Writers and, and, and people in the arts, and, and, and then apparently somebody backed out and you got me this way. <laughs> <laughs> well, what has brought you back to Indiana as a one-man show? Well, um, theater is something I've always wanted to do, and there's a great organization called Bloomington Playwrights Project. And about a year ago, two friends of mine, uh, Drew Gasparini and Alex Brightman, did a show here that went very well. And as they were walking out the door, Chad Rabinovitz, who is the artistic director, said, um, if you ever have anything else you want to do, let me know. And they said, we're working on a one-man show with Mark Summers. And he said, I'll buy it. <laughs> and so primarily because I think I have a generation of humans who grew up following me and first watched me on Nickelodeon and then followed me to Food Network. So um, he was excited. And here we are a year or so later. You've done decades of stage work, screen work. How new of an experience is this for you, creating, shaping, workshopping, and taking a show like this to the stage? It's very new. Um, last time I really did theater was probably when I was 15 years old at Footlight Musicals in Indianapolis. And um, something I always wanted to do but never felt comfortable doing. So I became a TV host and a stand-up comic and a magician and would live vicariously through theater by going uh, first on my own and then with my wife and then with my daughter who is a performer as well and never had the guts to do it. And I guess as one approaches 65, as I will in November, you start saying, what do I have to lose? How much commonality is there between this show and some of the stand-up comedy and, and comedy magic you did at the outset? Oh, I think there's a lot, except the difference is when you go on stage as a stand-up comic or as a host, you're yourself. Here, I'm playing myself, but I have to perform it. I have to act it out. And it's something that is somewhat new to me. I've taken acting lessons, and I can tell you endless stories, depending on how boring you want me to be, uh, with interactions with Mel Brooks, uh, with uh, being offered a show on Broadway based on the movie Big, um, and and never followed through, was asked and said no. And so I guess at this point, I finally have some confidence to try and pull this off. I was struck actually by... Uh, an interview clip between you and Jerry Lewis from about uh, 20 years ago. Mm. It's on YouTube. Um, Jerry was talking about 
pleasing his father, living up to his father's expectations. Mm -hmm. He had garnered a standing ovation at a command performance for the queen. And among those standing was the queen. He told his dad about it. And he his, said, Dad, it doesn't get better than that. And his dad says it does on Broadway. Yeah, I remember uh, that. Yeah, he was always trying to please somebody. And there's that thing in performers where people say, you know, why are you doing this? You know, is it because of your mother, your father? No, I just – it's the one thing in the bucket list that I haven't done I'm, I, you know, in show business, people will, will look you in the eye and tell you things that you know aren't true. At one point when we were rehearsing the show, I felt, wow, this is really long. I don't know if this is interesting at all. And then I asked some of the people around me who I trust and said, well, what do you guys think? And they said, no, it, it flew by. So sometimes when you're doing it, you lose perspective of what it is you're, you're trying to perform, what you're trying to get across. And then you get too into it. You get too heavy into it. And then you go, okay, just step back a second, you know. How improvised is it? It's not improvised at all. It's totally written. Alex Brightman, who is 28 years old and starring on Broadway in School of Rock and is an amazing performer, but in my opinion, he's even a better writer. This, this dream of doing the show actually came about about five or six years ago. Um, I had uh, gotten through cancer and uh, a car accident where I broke every bone in my face, and I went, okay, um, I, I better do this because I don't know if I'm going to get a second shot. And I pitched it to a friend of mine who was a Broadway producer, and he showed some interest and unfortunately died early. Mm. Very young guy. And um, But he offered me a job before he passed away doing Grease at a theater in Long Beach Island, New Jersey called Surflight Theater. And it was here I met Drew Gasparini, and Drew was a 24-year-old kid who was exceptionally bright. And I sort of uh, hitched my star to his wagon and hung out with him in New York, and he had me singing on stage at Joe's Pub in Studio 54 Below. And I thought, as I met his other friend, Alex, is there an idea here? Well, these are guys who grew up watching me. So Soupy Sales was my idol. And for whatever reason, what Soupy was to a generation, I am to another generation. So these kids were excited for the opportunity to write a show for what, you know, was a guy that they admired for whatever reason. And for two or three years, I would take them to dinner in New York City and talk. They would just interview me. And they'd have a tape recorder there. And a couple years later, they handed me a script. And uh, the timing of the script and Bloomington Playwrights and my desire to do it all melded. And here we are. You said the stage is the last thing on the bucket list. Hmm. Uh, that began, I understand, with television. You were driven from a very, very early age to be on TV. Did you have kind of a light bulb moment when you knew this is what you had to do? I was one of the lucky few who came out of the womb and knew exactly what he wanted to do. When I was uh, about five years old, there was a show that was on all around the country called Romper Room. And my mother at WFBM-TV in Indianapolis put me on Romper Room. Whatever magic it was that I had, they liked me. The producers liked me. So every time a kid would get sick, our phone would ring at like 6 in the morning, can you get Mark down here? So I became, you know, the, the fill-in. I was the David Brenner of The Tonight Show, except it was Romper Room in Indianapolis. And I remember walking into the studio. I, I remember the way it smelled. I remember the energy, the excitement. And there was a thing where they would, she would look at a magic mirror, and she would go romper, bumper, stomper, boo. Uh, and she would pretend 
to uh, be looking at you, and then they would go to a film piece, and then they'd switch out this mirror, and she'd be standing there, and there was nothing there, but she'd be looking at the camera. And as a five-year-old kid, I went, that is the coolest thing I have ever seen in my entire life. And so... I was bitten by the bug at, at about age five or six. Were you on camera much as oh, yeah. a film-in? Oh, I, I was doing. A, oh, I was, you know, what they did on Romper Room. I was coloring and, uh, you know, singing and dancing and doing what they did with preschool children and uh, was not inhibited in any way, shape, or form. You had a brother who uh, was breaking into show business ahead of you. Oh, my brother was a prodigy. At age 15, a car would pull up to our house uh, put his drums in the back of the car, and he was playing at age 15 with uh, Henry Mancini, Johnny Mathis. Uh, there was a club in Indianapolis called the Embers, and my brother was the drummer there, Mike Berkowitz. I'll tell you a great story. My brother decides in 1967-ish that he wants to move to Las Vegas. And so I get in a car, Volkswagen bus, and we drive cross-country. We land in Vegas, and same thing. They had fed him a bunch of stuff that get there right away, and boy, we'll get you a job. Well, when he gets there, he finds out that it ain't that easy, and there's unions and this and that. And we run out of money in 1967 going to Las Vegas. We don't have any credit cards. Um, There are no ATMs back in 1967, and we didn't know what to do. So my brother the week before had played for a man who may or may not mean anything to folks listening, Frankie Lane, who was a a massive singing star at the time. He did a hit called Mule Train, and Mike had played with him the week before, and he literally went into the hotel where Frankie Lane was performing and called him, and Frankie Lane loaned us like $250 until my parents could uh, wire us money on Western Union. Boy, it sounds like a million years ago. But um, show business... In a family where a a father owned a grocery store and the mother was a homemaker, but me and Mike were bitten by the entertainment bug at a young age. Growing up in Indianapolis, though, in the heartland, how far away did New York and Hollywood seem to you when you were a kid? Um, I I would watch the Ed Sullivan show every week and go, how do I get on? I like stand-up comics. I would watch Jack Carter and... Um, Jackie Vernon and, and Jackie Mason and and I got wow, how do you do that? So uh, two things happened. My confirmation class from the Indianapolis Hebrew Congregation took a, a trip to New York when you were in confirmation class. I was almost fourteen. I had never been to New York City before. I was just blown away by the sights, the sounds, and the smells. And they took us to a Broadway show. They took us to see Fiddler on the Roof. Well, my God, I'd never experienced anything like that in my entire life. And so there was the next bug. It's like, how do I get to do that? So I found out about this magazine called Variety. It was the show business Bible. And so there was one place in Indianapolis next to the Indiana Theater that got weekly Variety in. So when I was in sixth grade, starting at sixth grade, I would take a bus for 25 cents down to downtown Indianapolis. I would go into this newsstand next to the Indiana Theater and buy Variety for a quarter and read it cover to cover three times until next week when I would do the same thing. And I remember I would learn the terminology, um, you know, casting, legit, uh, uh, summer stock. I didn't know what these things meant. And so that's as close to show business as I could get in Indianapolis. You ended up getting out of Indy. You moved on after high school at North Central to Boston, to Graham Junior College, Mm -hmm. which was a a radio TV mecca for would-be broadcasters. Uh, Let me explain what Graham Junior College was. First of all, I I, I never wanted to go to college, so 
I go to North Central, and I, I'm, I'm voted the talented and most wittiest senior, which is hysterical. But I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to work in show business. So stupidly, I joined the Navy, okay? Uh, it, it was in the middle of Vietnam, and I decided, okay, well, if I can get into Armed Forces Radio and Television, I'll do that, get all this experience, and then get out and get a job. Well, I get into the Navy and find out that nobody from the Navy goes to Armed Forces Radio and TV. It was done in the Army. Oh, my gosh. Well, I had a history of bad knees and fought to get in the Navy, and they kept saying, no, 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 no. Uh, well, when I found out that it wasn't happening, I was lucky enough to meet a doctor who pulled some strings and got me out of the Navy after 28 days. And so I go back to Indianapolis, and all my friends are in college, and I don't know what to do with myself. And I go to apply at every radio and TV station in Indianapolis, and the answer is no, 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 no. So... My mom pulls out an article from Seventeen Magazine that said, come to Boston, learn broadcasting. So I go to Boston and interview at this college, which seemed like the coolest place in the world. What I found out later was if you had enough money, you could get in. I interviewed and they made it seem like it was this difficult thing. It, it really wasn't. They took anybody. But what was cool about this thing is up to that point, I was the only person I knew who ate, drank, and slept television and show business. But when I got to Graham, there were a couple of hundred other people exactly like me, and I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Names that people who follow the industry, at least to some extent, might know. Paul Fusco, the creator of ALF. I'm still friends with Paul to this day. He used to do puppets in my room at, at the dorm, and the first time ALF ever appeared was in my house uh, when I was living in the Valley in, in Los Angeles, and he used to take it to parties and walk around with it to see what people's reactions are. Then it became this massive thing. So from that school, you made your way out to L.A. Yeah. Um, my uh, brother was playing drums for Helen Reddy at the time and living in L.A. And I moved out and got a job as a page at CBS Television City where I was as close as I'd ever been. I mean, it was the Carol Burnett show. I was, I was a page on Carol Burnett, All in the Family, Price is Right, Sonny and Cher, uh, Mary Tyler Moore, where I met my wife. Um, it was like the last bit of real show business. And... I was the happiest human I'd ever been in my entire life. That was your first encounter there at CBS with game show hosts. Yeah, I, I met my idol, Bob Barker, there. <clears throat> I used to come home from school and watch a show called Truth or Consequences. And there was something about Barker that, whoa, that guy was amazing. And so, and so I become a page on Price is Right and finally had enough guts to walk up to him backstage and say, hey, my name is Mark. And... You know, I grew up watching you, and, and the next thing I know, I become an idea man on a show that he was doing called Truth or Consequences the last year it was on the air. And once again, died and gone to heaven. I get to go to work a couple of days a week and hang out with Barker. And so I learned a lot from that man. Probably the most important thing was if you want to be a good host – you make everybody else around you look good. And Bob and I, there was no cafeteria where we shot at KTTV. And we used to go out to the truck and discuss Jack Benny. Bob Barker and Mark Summers, favorite comedian in the whole world was Jack Benny because Jack Benny was just the guy who was there and looked brilliant because everybody around him, Dennis Day and Rochester and uh, Don Wilson and all the people, the supporting players, he made the stars. And Barker and I recognized that in him, and I think that's why Barker was such a big star, because the contestants were, the, were the, the, the big things, and he looked good because of it. 
And I learned that right away from Bob, and that's what I tried to do when I got my first show, Double Dare. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm John Bailey. Our guest today is television host and producer Mark Summers. At the time, I wasn't even a member. I was uh, a performer. I was doing about two weeks a month at the Magic Castle and realized fairly quickly that as a, uh, a magician, I was never going to get to where I wanted to go. So I started to throw stand-up comedy into it. People at the Magic Castle didn't like that, but I knew that's where I was heading. And I was working at a club in uh, Manhattan Beach called The Laugh Stop. And I was opening for Gallagher, and uh, Gallagher said to me, <laughs> my real name is Mark Berkowitz, he goes, hey, Berkowitz, you're a uh, expletive deleted. I said, why? Well, you know, every time you walk out there with one of them deck of cards, you get paid less than uh, a comedian. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you're a novelty act. So I didn't realize that as a magician, I was getting paid like 150 a week, but the opening act, who's a stand-up, was getting $300 a week. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So I slowly weaned myself out of doing magic and build up a stand-up comedy act and realized I was getting paid more. But magic was my roots. I did it in Indianapolis. I was a regular on a show called Popeye and Janie. And, and th- think about this, okay? It was 19, I don't know, 66 maybe. And, and back in the day, every local TV station had a kid's show. So there was NBC, CBS, ABC, and WTTV, the, the independent. And this guy comes in town, Dante the Magician. It wasn't Dante the Magician. He was a guy who like sold insurance from upstate New York. But he was smart enough to manufacture this magic kit and uh, go on TV and, and perform it. I had a way as a kid. Think about this. I, I had a paper route so I could make money so me and Mike, my brother, could put a phone in our, in our bedroom. Why did I need a phone? Hell, I don't know, but I did. <laughs> so I got a phone. Somehow I tracked the guy down who was Dante the Magician. His real name was like, you know, Steve Schwartz. And, you know, he sold insurance in in Rochester, New York. And I called him up and I said, hey, my name is Mark Berkowitz. I'm a magician. Can I do commercials for the Dante magic set? And he said, do whatever you want, but I can't pay you. So now I called every local station in Indianapolis at age 12 and said, "Um, I'm the spokesperson for the Dante magic set, and I'd like to come on your show. And, of course, they all said yes. So I start doing magic on local kid shows in Indianapolis at age 12, initially just doing tricks from the Dante magic set. And I first did a show called Popeye's Diner with a lady by the name of Mary Ellen Reed who was hysterical. And... Mary Ellen said, well, why don't you come back every week? Can you do other magic tricks other than the kid? And I said, yes. Well, Mary Ellen disappeared, and then it was Popeye and Janie. And for the next couple of years, I did magic tricks on a kid's show in Indianapolis. Well, okay, now I'm a step closer to show business. Still in Indianapolis, but now I'm a magician on TV. Whoa, that was cool. You were performing at least sometimes under the name Mark Berkowitz, your birth name. Mm -hmm. How and when (laughs) and why... Did you make the transition to Mark Summers? Initially, I was a disc jockey on weekends at WBMP in Elwood, Indiana. And the rumor had it, whoever the owner was in the day, uh, was not particularly fond of people who uh, may be of the ethnic persuasion that I was in. And I was told I had to change my name to get on the air. And so I became Mark Vaughn. Why, I have no (laughs) idea. But I became Mark Vaughn on uh, WBMP, Elwood, Indiana. And I did weekends from 6 to 11. And I was playing 101 Strings and Montavani and Pericoma Records and stuff like that. Then I go to Graham Junior College, and I'm on the air, and I become uh, – I was Mark Monroe for a while. Um, and back, back when I started in, in radio, everybody had a one-syllable first name and a two-syllable last name. I wake up one morning in Los Angeles, California, and they say, 
We have discovered the son of Sam. His name is David Berkowitz. And I went, oh, God, please. It wasn't wasn't even his real name. He was adopted. Okay. So my agent calls me after a few weeks and goes, you know, I can't get you an an interview anywhere. Nobody wants to see a guy with the last name of Berkowitz change your name. And he says, uh, nobody knows who you are anyway. This is for real. I got to do it now. I I tried a, a million things. I have a... My wife has cousins whose last name is Moshe, and I thought, well, Mark Moshe, that could work. And I don't know. It sounds stupid. Well, when I grew up in Indy, WIFE Radio had a guy by the name of Dick Summer, who I loved. When I go to Boston, he's on WKOX, and I see Dick Summer again, and I, I always admired this guy. So I took his last name and added an S to it, became Mark Summers, and I started to work because nobody's more anti-Semitic than other Jews in high places in show business. Um, <laughs> and I was told this all the time. A friend of mine, Marty Cohen, who was a very good stand-up comic and became a, you know, uh, one of the panelists on Match Game, and he went into one of the guys at Goodson Todman and said, I want to host a game show. And they said, oh, with a name like Cohen, you'll never be a game show host. You know, this is in the mid-'70s. Thank heavens that's all changed. So whatever that deal is, Mark Summers started to get jobs all of a sudden. But I, I was having a hard time making the big leap to what I wanted to do, which was being a host. In 1986, you got that opportunity. Nickelodeon launched a kids game show, family game show called Double Dare. Mm. And you were tapped as the host. How did that happen for you? By mistake. Right place, right time. A good friend of mine, Dave Garrison, uh, who was a ventriloquist from Indianapolis, was working with me doing stuff in in, uh, in L.A. and decided he didn't want to be a ventriloquist and try and be a, an act um, and wanted to be behind the scenes. So he called me up and said, I got a call from some network I've never heard of, Nickelodeon, uh, for an audition for a kids game show. Why don't you go instead of me? All right. So I went. And when I got there, there were adults playing the part of kids. And it was a game show. Well, hell, I always wanted to host a game show. Never wanted to host a kids game show. But this is first audition because when I wanted to host game shows at NBC and CBS and ABC, they kept telling me I look too young come back when you have gray hair and wrinkles because it was Bob Barker and Bob Eubanks and, uh, you know, uh, all the guys who were, you know, in vogue at the time. Wink Martindale, Jack Berry, all those guys. And I was a kid. And so here Nickelodeon was a kid show looking for somebody who wasn't necessarily a kid uh, but could wrangle kids. And I had background. I, at that point, had written for True the Consequences, but then I was a writer for a bunch of other game shows, and then I was a warm-up guy for a bunch of game shows. So I was primed and ready, and they had auditioned 1,000 people in New York and didn't like any of them. So they came to L.A. and auditioned 1,000 people in, in, uh, in L.A. I was the first guy who auditioned here. And I called my agent right after I got out, and I said, oh, man, I, I, this is mine. And he goes, yeah, I got like 10 other clients going in. Good luck on that. And I got a call back, and then I got a third call back. And it finally came down to me and another guy. And the one thing I used to do when I was auditioning was I would get the name of the head of casting and the exec producer. The exec producer was Mike Klinghoffer, and I knew the show was going to start shooting in September. This was the end of August. And I called Klinghoffer at uh, Nickelodeon New York. I said, hey, it's uh, Mark Summers. What's going on? I haven't heard from you guys. He goes, well, it's funny that you call because we've got it narrowed down to you and another guy. But we don't know if you're good with kids. Well, all the auditions up to this point were grown-ups playing the part of kids. And I said, well, I'm great with kids. I, I have two kids. And he goes, no, that's not good enough. I said, I used to do magic shows for kids. No, it's not good enough. And I said, well, why don't you take me and whoever this other guy is and put us in a studio in New York with real-life kids and let the best man win? And that's what they did. They flew us both there. To this day, I don't know who that other guy is. 
and they kept us separated. And I did my audition and left, and then he did his audition and he left. And two days later, I get a phone call, you got the job. And I said, let me ask you a question. You auditioned 1,000 people in New York and 1,000 people in L.A. Why did I get this? And he goes, well, I'm going to tell you quite honestly, um, you guys were about equal. But at the end of his audition, he looked at the camera and said, is that it? Or you, got, you guys want me to do anything else? And I looked in the camera and said, we'll be back with more Double Dare right after this. And he said, because you threw the commercial, it was more professional. And that's why you got the job. Go figure. Wow. So your interactions with Bob Barker, Jack Barry, Wink Martindale paid off to some extent? Oh, yeah. You know, I grew up uh, the best day when I was a kid and I was sick. Every network had three or four game shows. So I would watch all day. I would watch, you know, Who Do You Trust with Johnny? And I would watch Concentration. And I would watch Price is Right. And I would watch Jeopardy. And so all these guys were in my head. And I was going to my bedroom at night. And I would read Time Magazine and talk into a flashlight and pretend that I was an announcer, you know? And so Jack Berry was the first guy who hired me and fired me in Los Angeles as a page. I was a, a warm-up guy on that show. And so, yeah, they all had bits and pieces within me. And so when I had the opportunity – and by the way, I was 34 years old when I was auditioning for a kid's show on Double Dare. I still looked very young. But uh, if that, I would have gotten this audition at 22 or 23, there's no way I could have handled it. I didn't have the experience. And everything I did up to, up to that point, you know, made me ready to go conquer that, that thing. Do you think it helped you to look youthful at that time for this show? I guess it did. They did focus groups, and uh, kids thought I was either like uh, an older brother or a crazy uncle. Uh, I wasn't a dad figure, although I was married and had two kids at the time, but they didn't think so because I looked so young. So that worked for me. What aspects of presentation separate a great game show host from a mediocre one? That's the easiest thing in the world, listening. If you don't listen, you, you have no shot whatsoever. Johnny Carson, fantastic host. Why? He listened. Bob Barker, fantastic host. Why? Because he listened. Stand-up comics generally don't make good hosts because it's all about them. When you're a host, it's not about you. It's about the person who you're interviewing or who is the contestant. Listening and responding in the moment? Yeah, and not going for the laugh. You know, what they told me early on, and Barker said this to me, if you get one or two laughs a week, that's plenty. But if your contestant says something funny, then you just sit back and relish. Is part of making them look good also appearing to root for all the players in some way? Oh, yeah. Uh, and I used to get letters <laughs> Double there because a lot of times the kids would be so full of, of stuff where they couldn't get up the Sunday slide that I would push them up because uh, I wanted them to win. And, and the network would say to me, you know, you really can't do that. You can't help them that much. But I didn't care. I just, you know, what did I care if they won the trip to space camp? wasn't coming out of my pocket, so I, I helped them. The game show seemed to someone at the age that I was at the time uh, really outre. I mean, it was just – it was out there in terms of – the physical challenges, the stuff that kids were put through. It seemed like a great deal of fun and also exceptionally messy. What are some of the epic messes you recall from that show? We filled the tank. We had this tank, which initially was filled with, um, you know, like the, the, the balls that kids jump into. And then we put styrofoam peanuts in there. And um, one day, 
we decide to fill it with 4,000 pounds of baked beans. Okay. Now, first of all, how do you even get 4,000 pounds of baked beans? We have to go to a uh, restaurant supply place and get those huge, you know, cans. And we had guys just for hours opening cans and, you know, and so you can only imagine the first day it didn't smell bad, but by the third day it smelled like a, a bad school cafeteria. So now after three or four days, you have to get those baked beans out of there. We didn't know how to do it. So we literally at first had guys with shovels uh, shoveling the beans into large garbage sacks, and that wasn't working. So the way we solved it was we called, you know, those guys who come with the trucks to clean septic tanks? So we call a guy. He walks into the studio with hip waders, and he goes, uh, huh, beans, huh? And we go, yeah. He goes, want me to get those out of there? We go, yeah. So he, he pulls in one of those huge, you know, sucking machines, and he wades in there and sucks the beans. Out. So that was one of the first times that uh, I went, okay, what are we doing here, you know? It was dog food at one point. <laughs> oh, well, dog food was horrible. I, if you open up a can of dog food, I, I just lose it. I, I, I need to throw up and I walk out. And one day they were doing a physical challenge in Orlando with dog food. And I, I literally walked out of the studio. I said, I can't do this. So they had to change the physical challenge. The, the smell of fresh horse, horse meat just doesn't work for me. And I just uh, I didn't work for me. How did they keep the set clean? Uh, initially in Philadelphia, it was tough because we were in a very tiny studio. When we built uh, Nick Studios down in Orlando, they were smart enough to build actual drains in the floor. So when we go to a commercial break, you know, a, a parade of guys with squeegees would come in and basically just, you know, put it into these drains and it would go right out. And occasionally they'd have to spray some water. But, man, those commercial breaks, when we turned them around in Orlando, we did it at the time. That, those shows were amazing. This is WFIU's Profiles. I'm John Bailey. We're talking today with Mark Summers, television host and producer. When I first learned of your longtime battle with obsessive compulsive disorder, Mm -hmm. the first thing I thought was, how could he possibly stand dealing with all that food, Mm. green slime on the hair, pies in the face? How were you able to manage that? Because I finally got what I always wanted. And so it was a matter of overcoming whatever OCD was to me. Now, here's the thing. I was never a germaphobe, okay? Howie Mandel doesn't want to shake your hand. He does the fist bump and all that stuff. That wasn't me. I'll shake your hand all day long. Mine was neatness and orderliness, putting things symmetrical, and staying clean. So if I would get my hands sticky, I couldn't wait to wash my hands. Like, I would walk to school and get dust all over my shoes because of where we lived in Indianapolis. And the first thing I would do would be go to the bathroom and get those brown paper, paper towels, get them wet, and wipe my shoes off. Okay, So I did not like mess. So when I auditioned for Double Dare, we did um, physical challenges and we did questions, but we didn't do the obstacle course. So the first day I walk into the studio, Here's a slide, and a guy is pouring whipped cream and chocolate on it. And I walked over to him. I said, excuse me, what are you doing? He said, well, this is the obstacle course. I said, what's the obstacle course? Well, after they win, they have to run eight obstacles in 60 seconds or less. And I went, do you really think kids are going to want to do this? Well, you know, I was absolutely wrong. Of course they did. It was We found out the kids would run the obstacle course for no prizes. They just wanted to get messy. So... The first 65 episodes, I don't get a mess on me. Nothing, nothing. I, I, those kids are running, and I, I couldn't be any further away from them. And then after the first 65, Klinghoffer, the exec producer, calls me and goes, um, you got to get messy. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, you, you, you can't 
walk around the course and have those kids get slopped up, and, and you're neat as a pin. It just doesn't work. So, okay. So slowly but surely, the uh, main objective of kids used to be, how messed up can I get Mark? <laughs> and when we built the Orlando set and we had something called Lake Double Dare, they all wanted to take me and just throw me into the water. Well, you know what? When you're a kid and the host is, you know, in charge and you want to let him know that you want to have a good time, you go into that water. And I defy anybody to ever look at an episode and say I was not having a good time. I was able to sell that more than life itself. But the minute the camera was off and we were done, uh, the folks at Nickelodeon would get upset because I would start to undress in front of the kids because I was covered and I didn't like that feeling. And so I would take off my sport jacket, I would take off my tie, and I would start to unbutton my shirt. And they used to say, could you go do that in the dressing room? No, I just wanted to get it off me. So I was that was the greatest acting job I ever did because – and I truly was having fun, and I could never let anybody know that those substances were bothering me. But the minute the camera went off, man, get that stuff away from me. Your first, I believe, public disclosure that you were, in your words, a neatness freak hmm. occurred against a remarkable backdrop. Your first appearance on The Tonight Show in yeah. 1994. Would you talk about that experience? <laughs> sure. Uh, all I ever wanted to do, I used to watch Johnny from the time I was, I saw him on Who Do You Trust? And then he became the host of The Tonight Show and my parents would go to bed and I would sneak down in the den at night and, and I would watch Johnny and he would have Buddy Hackett on and he would have, you know, Mel Brooks and Woody Allen. I was like, oh my God. And so I wanted to be on The Tonight Show with Johnny and Johnny was a magician and I figured, well, maybe Johnny and I could do magic together. Well, it never happened. Fast forward the tape. Um, I'm hosting four shows at one time. I'm doing... Double Dare, what would you do? Pick your brain, and I'm on a show on ABC called The Home Show. And I have a publicist who is trying to get me on The Tonight Show. I'm like a semi-name, okay? I, I'm not a big name. I'm like an okay comic, but I'm a host, and I have this huge audience with kids and families. And this is how show business works. My publicist at the time was Jason Alexander's publicist. Jason was doing Seinfeld, and Jay wanted him as a regular. So my publicist says, if you want Jason to be a regular, you got to put Summers on. Welcome to the real world. So they interview me and they say yes. And for the next year, I'm booked and unbooked and booked and unbooked. And so like I stopped telling people I was going to be on The Tonight Show because it seemed like I was a liar. Well, I finally get the phone call. You're going to be on The Tonight Show. Oh my gosh. So they pick me up. And the car gets a flat tire on the way there. And I go, man, this just wasn't meant to be. Finally get there, go in the dressing room. You know, Jay comes, hey, Mark, how you doing? You know, nice, nice to see you. I you had a flat tire. You know, whatever Jay does. And I'm supposed to be on with Burt Reynolds. Now, at the time, Burt was going through this really messy divorce with Lonnie Anderson. And for some reason, the night before, Jay trashed him. I'm supposed to come on and do a magic trick. And one of the things I was going to do was a cut and restored tie. Okay. For whatever reason that night, to this day, I don't know if this was set up or not, Burt Reynolds comes out and he's angry about the monologue that Jay had done the night before, and he cuts Jay's tie off. Okay, well, here's the problem. Uh, I hate to give out too many secrets, but Jay had a duplicate tie on that I had. Well, he cuts Jay's tie. Now I'm screwed. I can't do the trick. So I go to the producers and I go, I don't know what you want me to do, but I can't do the trick now because... 
the tie we had set up with JD isn't there. Did you bring anything else? Yes, I brought a card trick. So I have like a card trick in my back pocket. I'm told Jay doesn't like card tricks. He doesn't know clubs from spades. He calls clubs puppy dog tails or something. Oh, man. So it's stressful enough. Bert's on. He's complaining about Jay and Lonnie and this book tour he's on. He'd written a book. So he's supposed to do two segments. He does three. Now we're backstage. I'd been bumped for a year. And I'm supposed to go on and Carrot Top is supposed to go on. Okay. Okay. Nobody knows who either one of us are. They're getting ready to bump me. And my publicist walks over to him and says, if you bump Mark... Jason Alexander ain't doing your show anymore. Yeah, okay, got clout, so I go out. So I'm the last segment, and I start to talk. They show a clip from What Would You Do and Double Dare, and Burt Reynolds has no interest in me. Now, I had been on Win, Lose, or Draw, a show that he created with Burt Convy a million times. I was a regular on Win, Lose, or Draw. He apparently had never seen me. So Jay's interviewing me about... Um, the obstacle course and I tell the baked beans story and Bert goes gee that's interesting I'm sorry I didn't see it very sarcastically and he said and by the way your back is to me and I'm just talking to a back the audience goes whoa and I said I'm sorry Bert um, I can talk to you um, and uh, I said I used to be on your show you know when there's a draw and he goes funny I don't remember and then he says, you're talking about being a neatness freak. Who said you're a neatness freak? And I said, my wife. And then I said, and by the way, I'm still married. Mm. Well, now the audience to me goes, whoa. And he gives me a double take. And there's a mug of water in front of me, which he pours into my crotch. <laughs> well, my whole life kind of flashed in front of me because I always wanted to be on The Tonight Show. And now I'm on The Tonight Show with Burt Reynolds. And he just poured water into my crotch. What am I supposed to do? So I reached for a mug that was in front of me, and I was going to do it to him. And he straight-armed me, and he knocked the cup into my face. I thought he broke a tooth. I'm, if you look at the tape, I'm looking, touching my mouth. And, and Jay says, welcome to late night TV. And I said, you know, I host this little kid show and this and that. And Bert sort of pretends to fall asleep, and there's another mug of water in front of me, and I take it and I pour it on Bert. And what you don't see on the tape is not only does the audience applaud, but they give me a standing ovation. <laughs> and so all of a sudden now I see Jay whisper something. What's going on? And the next thing I know, there are two pies out there. Well, what I had found out after the fact was they were going to try and do some sort of pie thing with me. But Jay said, no, I don't want to go down that road. But they had the supplies there. Well, none of this was rehearsed. So, so Bert pours water into my crotch. I reciprocate. And, and Bert says, I deserve this. I really did. And the next thing, the stage manager is holding two pies. Well, I'm looking like, okay, what, what the hell is this? So we go back to back. And if you notice, Bert holds onto the back of my coat. And when we count to three and turn around, he clobbers me. I get him a little bit, but not a whole bunch. <laughs> And he whispers in my ear, he hugs me and says, I only did this because I really like you. Okay, well, I don't even mm -hmm. know what that meant. Well, we, we, we bring Jay because we're going to do a pie. And this is, Jay made a big mistake here. There was another pie there. And if it was Johnny, Johnny would have taken the pie because that would have been the thing to do. But Jay pushes the pie and it goes away. We go to commercial. Bert leaves the set, disappears. They're trying to clean me up. 
And Jay comes over to me and goes, what, what was that about? And I go, I don't know. You got me. And so we come back, and, and it's over with. Well, I didn't even know what the hell had just happened. And I call my wife, Alice, and I go, either the best thing in the world just happened to me or the worst thing just happened to me. The NBC attorneys are out there. They're scared to death that I'm going to sue them that I was hurt, and they promise they're going to replace my suit. By the way, I never wore that suit again. Had it dry cleaned. It's still hanging in my closet. And I'm driving home, and by the time I'm home, keep in mind the show uh, sh- shot from, I think, uh, it was uh, 5.30 to 7 or something. I get home at a quarter to 8, and they're already running promos. See what happens tonight on The Tonight Show. And the headline in the New York Post the next day was, Bert Goes Berserk on Tonight, okay? My phone is ringing off the hook. Next thing I know, you know, I'm talking to Howard Stern and, and Oprah and, and uh, the Today Show, and everybody wants to, to talk to me, Entertainment Tonight. It was insane. And to this day, that was 1994, okay? People still stop me on the street and say to me, that was all made up. And I went, no, man, that wasn't. <laughs> that, that really happened. So lost among all the water and the shaving cream and Bert's attitude was the trigger for all this, which was the neatness freak yeah. thing. Yeah. And that and that turned out to be, in a way, sort of a, an initial disclosure of, of your OCD. First time I ever said it on TV or nationally, I think it was on The Tonight Show in 94, saying, you know, I said, I'm a neatness freak. I'm kind of like Felix Unger from The Odd Couple, you know. How, how much of an on-the-spot realization was that for you? Um, at what point did you become aware that, that maybe you were extreme? Oh, I knew I was extreme. You know, and I tell you how you know you're extreme. When, you, when you're married and, and your wife says to you, you know, really, do we have to clean the house every Sunday? And then uh, when my son Matthew was born, uh, he was the only kid who was uh, four years old. He had an ice cream cone and not get a drop on him, and I was proud of that. And then I realized that I was transferring. OCD is um, – has to do with serotonin not getting from point A to point B, but it's hereditary. And it's hereditary in particular parts of the world. People who were born in, uh, especially Ashkenazi Jews, who were born in Russia, Romania, Hungary, Poland, have a high predominance of it. The entire continent of, of I'm sorry, the entire continent of uh, New Zealand uh, has a high predominance of it. Holland, huge amount of Japanese people. And so it's something that you're born with. And then you have to learn to control it. But I knew I had it bad. And, and at the time, my wife and I were having issues about my cleanliness and having everything having to be perfect in the house. Well, you know, you have two kids. Good luck with that. Was there a, was there a hitting of bottom with your condition? Yeah. Um, I was hosting a talk show on Lifetime Television called Biggers and Summers. Sissy Biggers and myself did it live every day at 11 o'clock. And it was your typical talk show. You know, Tom Selleck was on one day. We had uh, Tony Randall, uh, uh, Tom yeah, Tom Selleck. I mean, you name it. We had anybody who was anybody. Somehow we had a great booker and we got all these great people on. One day we have Dr. Eric Hollander on, who is clinical professor of psychology at some place in New York. And he's on to talk about obsessive compulsive disorder. Well, I, I never heard of that. And unlike many TV hosts, I actually did research before I went, went on TV. And I was reading the material the night before, and it said, obsessive cleaning. I went, yeah, I got that. Uh, putting things symmetrically. Yeah, I do that. Um, having intrusive thoughts. Uh, that's me. Then I realized, oh, my God, all this crazy stuff I've been hiding my entire life has a name. So now I have to make a decision. 
Do I go on TV the next day and lie and, and pretend I don't have this? Or do I make a confession? So I was a mess in, in, the, in the green room walking around, and I pulled Dr. Hollander aside in the green room, and I said, man, I was reading this stuff. I think I have this. And he said to me, well, what makes you think you do? And I started having a conversation. Well, then we go on the air, and he starts talking about what some of the signs are, and I say on live TV, I think I have obsessive compulsive disorder. Well, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, bombs start going off. You want to hear your career go in the toilet. Uh, just go on national TV and tell people you have obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and I didn't think anything about it. Well, the next thing I know is People Magazine doing an article on me and Dateline is following me around from NBC. I'm on Oprah Winfrey talking about the messiest game show host having obsessive compulsive disorder. I, I kind of didn't even know what the hell was going on. So I took Dr. Hollander's card, and I put it in my pocket, and I went, yeah, maybe someday I'll use this. So at least I know that I have something. It's got a name. And then they canceled Biggers and Summers. And I had just renewed my apartment for another year, and, and now I'm obsessed with cleaning. We're, we're living in a 5,000, 6,000-square-foot house. I remember it's gigantic. Six bedrooms, six and a half baths. It's pristine. <laughs> Nobody is allowed to sit in the living room. We barely use the dining room. God forbid my wife should say, we're going to have Thanksgiving here. It's like, oh, God, how do I deal with that? All these people are going to be here because I wanted it to look like perfect. And people used to go to bed at night, and then I would get up at 1 or 2 in the morning, and I would straighten things. So I'm down on my hands and knees in the front area where you walk in, and I'm straightening fringe on the carpet. And Alice comes out and goes, what the hell are you doing? And I looked up at her and I said, I have no idea. And mm. she said, do you still have the, the card of that doctor? And I went, yeah. And she said, in the morning, you're calling him. So I called up Dr. Hollander and I said, my OCD is out of control and uh, I need help. So I flew to New York City and started going to sessions with Dr. Hollander. And he set me up with a behavior therapy class in Los Angeles because what you have to do, first I went on medication, and then you have to start retraining the mind to not do what it is you're doing. And it was a process. And so I did that, and, and Dateline continued to follow me. And my graduation from Dateline, where I thought I was cured, was they said, you need to let us in your house at 7 in the morning and go away for four hours, and then we'll call you when we want you to come back. Keep in mind, my house was perfect. The drapes were perfect, the couch and the living, nobody ever sat on it. And I walked back in, Sarah James from NBC News is there, and they made my living room a TV studio. They had moved everything. They had moved the curtains, they had moved the couches, they had moved the chairs, and when I walked in, I felt my knees buckle. And Sarah James brought me into my former living room and interviewed me and said, well, what does it feel like? And that's online. You can look at that. And it, it, it took me a while to be able to catch my breath and go, okay, <laughs> you're fine, and you can get through this. And after they left, they didn't fix a thing. I had to put everything back the way it was. And you were compelled to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did you get through it as 
a performer, the way you got through all those messes on Double Dare as a performer? Absolutely. No question about it. How safe does it feel to perform as opposed to the rest of your life? Uh, it's the only place I feel comfortable. Back when Double Dare was a gigantic hit and Dave Letterman grew up in Indianapolis and we were at the comedy store together and um, the writers on Letterman's show used to love Double Dare and I used to go and hang out there afterwards. And, and, and Dave said something to me once that was exactly how I felt. The other 23 hours of the day are difficult, but that one hour that I'm out there doing that show, wow, that's the best time in the world. And in my one-man show, we refer to it as Planet TV, that I feel comfortable on Planet TV. And then when you walk off stage, it's like, oh, now I've got to deal with the world, you know? So doing Double Dare, doing Couch Potatoes, doing Biggers and Summers, um, doing Unwrap, doing all those things, that's, that's my favorite time of the day. Because I get to perform and I get to be that person that I grew up watching on TV, Bob Barker, Johnny Carson. I get to be that guy. But then when you walk off, you got to face the real world. You wrote in your book, Everything in Its Place, a memoir that focused heavily on OCD in 1999, mm -hmm. that your parents were concerned that they were not only embarrassed for themselves, mm -hmm. they were concerned about an adverse effect that this disclosure might have on your career. Oh, yeah. Like my parents came from the era of you don't air your dirty laundry. So they didn't talk to me for a year. They wanted nothing to do with it. They, they, you're crazy. We don't do those things. You know, meanwhile, my dad's closet looked like it came from a men's warehouse. And, uh, you know, if uh, the cleaning lady would go in and touch his shoes and move him a quarter inch, he'd, he'd have a nuclear fit. And, and so they were scared to face up to it. Uh, that was number one. So it took us a year to get back together on that. And it did hurt my career. Um, all of a sudden, people thought I was crazy. You know, show business is funny. You can be a drug addict or an alcoholic, and in show business, it's like, well, that's no big deal. But because serotonin didn't get from point A to point B, all of a sudden, uh, I'm nuts. And so I was assigned to do uh, the new Hollywood Squares. And then word gets around that I'm supposedly crazy, and, and they take the job away from me. Well, Jesus, you know, really? I have OCD? And, and, and so that was a weird time. They had made an announcement to the CBS-owned and operated stations that Mark Summers was hosting it. And at the affiliates meeting, uh, they stood up. And then all of a sudden, I'm not there um, because of rumors. And, and so, yeah, I was, I was going through a really hard time. You seem to be on the upswing at the time you wrote your book in 1999. How are you coping with it now? Oh, I, I'm fine. I mean, uh, I keep telling myself that. Um, <laughs> uh, the only thing I can't do is go into a supermarket. Like, I hate doing that because I get stuck reading labels. The whole thing is about reading them perfectly. See, if you have OCD, you have a rule book, and the rule book changes every day, every hour, every minute, perhaps. And so the worst thing about OCD is intrusive thoughts. You tell yourself that if you don't do something perfectly, that something bad will happen to your plane, your kids, your family, something like that. Well, I don't necessarily have the intrusive thoughts anymore, but I do get stuck on aisles reading labels. And so... I will do anything in the world to not go to the Wegmans near my place in Philadelphia because uh, I don't want to get stuck in there. So I make a list, 
and I know where everything is, and I go and I get everything as quickly as I can and hope to get out of there in 20 minutes. Sometimes I get stuck, and it's not fun. But that's about the only time it happens. I'm overcoming just about every other aspect of it, and it doesn't rule my life like it it once did. In fact, you can go into my hotel room right now, and if you can think that I have a, a OCD after looking at that mess, um, so things don't have to be neat. They don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be folded. Um, I can actually live pretty darn normally right now. What kind of relationship have you traced between OCD and the life of the performer? Is there a correlation? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that you want your, your heart surgeon, your brain surgeon, and your airline pilot to have OCD because they're going to check things over and over again. So when I go out to perform, I try to make things perfect. And so I think the reason I'm successful is because of obsessive-compulsive disorder. It drove me to do things that I think normal people wouldn't do. And seeking that perfection and redoing things over and over again, I think, is a critical part of anybody's life. I mean, I think if you're not successful, it's because you don't have a passion and you're not driven. Am I driven? Oh, yeah. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I'm pretty driven. Sometimes it's, it's exhausting. And here's the best part. I've never worked a day in my life. I'm just doing what I love. And the fact that I get money to do this and that I walk down the street and people want to take a picture with me and that I can walk into a busy restaurant and get seated right away, wow, that's just, you know, part of the fun and the overflow of, of doing what I do. But I never, at age seven, went, you know what? I want to go to the best restaurants in town and not have to make a reservation. It's not in your you know, head at that age. So it's just part of the, the fun of the whole situation. You have hosted and now produced so much series television. Mm. Uh, do you think legacy at all? Oh, I don't even know what that word means. I don't, I, I don't do anything. I don't legacy. What is that stupid word? No, I, I don't do anything other than stuff that I want to do. I don't care if anybody 10 years from now remembers Mark Summers. It's somewhat irrelevant. Uh, I mean, I hope my kids have some good memories about silliness that I've done, and they've been able to participate. Uh, They got to be on Double Dare sort of behind the scenes because they weren't allowed to be contestants because I was the host. But they've gotten some perks out of it, and that's been fun. But, you know, recently David Letterman um, said something about now that he's been off the show for several months, he realized how ego-driven he was and that what he did, which seemed so important at the time, is somewhat irrelevant. If you think that Double Dare and Unwrapped has any relevancy to what's going on in the world today, well, you've got a big problem. It's, it's mindless entertainment. So what I do is really insignificant. But I had fun, and I hope I entertained people, and I hope they have good memories of what I did. But, you know, when they dig up the time capsule, am I part of that? Nah, it's, it's irrelevant. But you worked so hard. Yeah, but that's for me. So many things. What are you yeah. proudest of? My family. Um, my kids and, and my son is, um, a very successful executive producer on a show called, uh, Cutthroat Kitchen. And he just did a show for, um, Bravo. And my daughter is, um, singer and an actress and a yoga instructor. And, you know, they're both happy. 
And, and you know, me and my wife, Alice, been married for 41 years. So really, that's all that matters. TV? It's irrelevant. You know, I become an emotional, you know, ball of jelly when I start talking about this stuff. But all you got, you, you know, you got like two or three good friends and you got your family. That's really all that matters. Nobody cares. You know, you wake up in the morning. If you think, you know, when I lecture to colleges, I always say, Nobody got up this morning and said, I got to go get Mark Summers a job today. Nobody cares about you or me or anything else except your family and, and maybe two or three friends. So, you know, uh, at age 65, as I dab my eyes and blow my nose here, um, your priorities better be in that situation. And so I've been away from my family now for a couple of weeks on the road performing. And thank heavens for FaceTime, because if I would have had that when I was sitting at the Four Seasons in Philadelphia when we were shooting Double Dare, life would have been a lot easier. But I went through periods of time where I didn't see my family for months. And so as a performer, you give up a lot. How bad do you really want to be on stage? How bad do you want to follow your dreams? You need to sacrifice a hell of a lot. And, and, and I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I've been married 41 years. I always say the reason I've been married 41 years, I've only been home 14 of them, but it, it, it kind of works. And I have the most amazing wife, Alice, who's allowed me to do exactly what I've wanted to do. So my wife, you know, the, the day we moved into this house, this big house, this dream house of ours, I get a phone call from Lifetime Television saying, here's a TV show. It's your own talk show in New York City. And I, I have a box cutter in my hand, and I'm opening a box. And I look at Alice, and I go... <laughs> What should I do? And she said, it's what you always wanted. Just go do it. And so four days a week I was in New York, and three days a week I was in L.A. Not many people are lucky enough to have somebody who would allow that to happen. So I, I appreciate and understand that I, I found, you know, the, uh, the, the certain terms I hate, you know, a soulmate is not necessarily one I love. But whatever that term is, you know, Alice and I figured out our lives, and she allowed me to go do what I wanted to do. And by the way... She was allowed to do what she wanted to do. And so I had another life. I went out to dinner with all sorts of people that my wife didn't know. And I said, I want you to come here. And I want you to meet all the people that I talk about on the phone, but you don't know. And so every meal for three weeks, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, Alice went out with somebody else that I talked about on the phone. And at the end of that experience, she said, I get it. Um, I would have been friends with all these people, and I know why you like being here, and I know why these friendships work. But I think the whole situation, you know, without being, you know, old school, was about trust. Yeah. Well, okay, you happy you made me cry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I've been speaking today with Mark Summers. Thank you very much for being with us. And, and thank you for being so good at what you do. And the reason you're so successful is because uh, two things. You did your homework and you listen. Thank you very much. This is John Bailey for Profiles. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU.
and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.